Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in chapter 11 of Hebrews, in the fourth section of the chapter. This is the famous chapter concerning faith and the heroes of faith, the Hebrews Faith Hall of Fame. Our context is this, in the first part of Hebrews 11, verses 1 through 7, the author talked about the faith of the antediluvians, such as Seth, excuse me, such as Abel, Noah. Then we see in verses 8 through 22 of Hebrews 11, the author talks about the faith of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then in the third section of Hebrews 11, verses 23 through 31, the author talked about the faith of Moses, and mentions Joshua too there at the end, the faith of the people on the Exodus. And then in this section that we're going to talk about now, the author is going to talk about the faith of the judges in verses 32 through 40, and we'll finish up the chapter. Notice how he's moving through the history of Israel in chronological order. So we start now in verse 32, Hebrews 11. And what more can I say? Time is too short for me to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. David and Samuel are right at the end. They're not judges. They're at the end of the judges, and the, these other guys are judges. Now, time is too short for the author to tell about them. His time is too short for me to tell the story about all of them because we'd be here all night because there's basically a whole bunch of Old Testament history here, so I'll skip over that. We will get to it when I get to my audios on the Old Testament. So let's pick up some details about these guys or about this verse. First of all, the NIV Study Bible makes an interesting point that the Greek verb, Greek form of the verb tell, time is too short for me to tell, the Greek form of the verb tells us that the author of Hebrews was a man. Well, whoop-de-doo, is that a big surprise? Now, these heroes of faith are not in chronological order, as Gill and Clark point out. And if you're interested, you can read about Gideon in Judges 6, 1 through 8, chapter 6, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 35. Barak is in Judges 4, verses 6 through 5, chapter 4, verse 6 through chapter 5, verse 15. Samson is in chapter 13. Of Judges, verse 24 through chapter 16, 31. And Jephthah is in Judges 11, 1 through chapter 12, 7. You notice it's not necessarily in order, in chronological order. Now, one interesting point about Jephthah here, he's mentioned in the Faith Hall of Fame. And J. Benson Fawcett and Brown say that that makes it unlikely that Jephthah sacrificed his daughter due to a rash vow. You remember the story. Jephthah said, I will dedicate to the Lord. As a whole burnt offering, I think it was, the first living being that crosses my threshold or something to, something to that effect, and his daughter walks through the door. Now, I remember, I forgot who wrote that book, Difficulties in the Bible. It's a fantastic little book, old book, apologetic-type book, short book. And he said, this is not true that Jephthah sacrificed his daughter. He said they kept animals in their houses all the time back then. He was talking about an animal, that was the first animal that walked through the door. That makes a lot of sense to me because I don't know why you would hold up as some paragon of faith a man who burned his own daughter up. I never had understood that. But there's a lot of people out there that believe Jephthah murdered his daughter and fried her, and I don't believe it. Notice that Samuel here in verse 32 is mentioned as one of the prophets. Samuel and the prophets. Samuel is one of those prophets. We see that in Acts 3.24. In addition, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those after him. So Samuel was not only a judge, he was a prophet. We go now to verse 33. And remember now, the point of all these heroes of faith being mentioned is to buck up the Hebrews 
help them undergo their horrible persecution that they were suffering from the unregenerate Jews who were running Israel at the time in the, in the 60s A.D., right before the kingdom was destroyed in A.D. 70. They needed encouragement. They were Jewish Christians, so they would respond to these examples of Jewish faith heroes. Verse 33, Hebrews 11, Who by faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. Now, the author's going to mention here in verses 33 through 35, heroes of faith who had positive outcomes. They won. But then he's going to get in verses 36 and 37, heroes of faith who didn't get positive outcomes like like the one who got sawn in two. So we're going to make this point several times. The point of faith is not that you get a positive outcome. The point of faith is that you believe God no matter what the outcome is. That's something I think that the Copenhagenites might be do well to consider. You know, sometimes the walls of Jericho fall down. Sometimes the men of faith die in a state of persecution. Are right, these men of faith conquer kingdom? Here are some examples of Old Testament conquerors. The best example is David. As Gil says, he subdued Syria, Moab, Ammon, Amalek, Edom, and the Philistines. Second Samuel eight twelve says, From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Amalekites, and the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Zobah was a Syrian kingdom right north to Israel. And so here we see how many kingdoms David conquered by faith. Edom was to the south and southeast of the Dead Sea. Moab was to the east of the Dead Sea, right to the north of Edom. The Ammonites were to the north of Moab which is basically east of the Jordan River in present-day Jordan, Ammon. Jordan comes from Ammonites. The Philistines, who were on the western coast of Israel, the Mediterranean coast, the Amalekites, who I think were on the south and southwest. I mean, David did a job. He conquered a bunch of people in order to make the kingdom safe for God. These judges administered justice. Most of the people that were mentioned here, like Samuel and Barak, they administered justice because they were judges. That's what judges did. They administered justice. A judge, of course, was more than just a judicial official. He was a military guy, too, in the Old Testament sense. But they also administered justice. By the way, the example of Old Testament conquerors, conquerors uh, we can also mention some people who the author of Hebrews did not mention in verse 32. For example, Joshua, he subdued the seven Canaanite nations in Canaan. He's already been mentioned for knocking down Jericho's walls in a previous audio, previous verse in the chapter. So anyway... Conquerors. This is supposed to let the Hebrew Christians know, hey, our forefathers in faith conquered their enemies. It says that these heroes of faith obtained promises. What promises? Well, they obtained the promised land by subjugating the pagan occupants. They shut the mouth of lions. For example, Daniel in the lion's den. I would suspect that when the author in verse 32 mentions as a hero of faith Samuel and all the prophets, Daniel would be a prophet. He shut the mouth of the lion in the lion's den. The lion didn't eat him like he could have. How about Samson, Judges 14.6? The Spirit of the Lord took control of him, and he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. How about David, in 1 Samuel 17, verses 34 through 37? David answered Saul, Your servant has been tending his father's sheep. Whenever a lion or a bear came and carried off a lamb from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, and rescued the lamb from its mouth. If it reared up against me, I would grab it by its fur, strike it down, and kill it. Your servant has killed lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine would be like one of them. That's Gath, the giant Goliath of Gath. 
David said, The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. So that took a lot of guts. I mean, it's one thing to fight the giant Goliath, but to me it was even worse to go after a lion that had a lamb in its mouth, and you're going to take that lamb out of the lion's mouth, and you're going to do that? That takes guts. That takes faith. We go to verse 34, Hebrews 11. These heroes of faith quench the raging of fire, escape the edge of the sword, gained strength after being weak, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. When did these heroes of faith quench the raging of fire? Well, Daniel's friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were in the fiery furnace, and it didn't burn them up. How about Moses at Taborah? Now, this, again, is not mentioned in the, the, the judges. These are other examples, which I'll throw in anyway because uh, they showed faith also. Moses at Taborah in, in Numbers 11, 1 through 3. Now, the people began complaining openly before the Lord about hardship. When the Lord heard, his anger burned, and fire from the Lord blazed among them and consumed the outskirts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So that place was named Taborah because the Lord's fire had blazed among them. In Hebrews 11, verse 34, the heroes of faith were said to have escaped the edge of the sword. Now, John Gill gathers together a lot of Old Testament figures who did escape the edge of the sword. Lot, Abraham, Moses, Joshua, the judges, David, Elijah, Elisha. When you put them all together, you realize, man, the people of God were opposed constantly by people who wanted their heads. These heroes of faith gained strength after being weak, in verse 34. Here's an example. John Gill mentions David and Hezekiah both recovered from bodily illnesses after they were weak. Samson was filled with courage. After he had become weak when he got his hair cut off, Milton says this, John Milton, the famous English poet, says this of the martyrs. They shook the powers of darkness with the irresistible power of weakness. I am weak, but he is strong. Apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. These Hebrew heroes of faith are also said in verse 34 to put foreign armies to flight. Gil mentions the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, and others. If you read Old Testament history, they were put to flight by the believing Israelites. Judges 7:21. each Israelite took his position around the camp, and the entire Midianite army fled and cried out as they ran in the case of Gideon. We go to verses 35, verse 35 of Hebrews 11. Women received their dead. They were raised to life again. Some men were tortured, not accepting release, so, they, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Now, the women who received their dead, probably the widow of Zarephath in the case of Elijah and the Shunammite woman in the case of Elisha. Other cases that were mentioned in this verse, the author might have had in view, but we don't know who they might be, according to Adam Clark. So let's look at the widow of Zarephath. The NIV Study Bible, Gill, Clark, and Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown all say that this is who Elijah was, the author of Hebrews was referring to. 1 Kings 17, 17 through 24. After this, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. His illness became very severe until no breath remained in him. She said to Elijah, this is the widow of Zarephath, Man of God, what do we have in common? Have you come to remind me of my guilt and to kill my son? Elijah's staying there, and all of a sudden she starts, must have a guilt complex. She thinks this holy man's going to kill her or kill her son and, and accuse her of guilt. But Elijah said to her, Give me your son. So he took him from her arms, brought him up to the upper room where he was staying, and laid him on his own bed. Then he cried out to the Lord and said, My Lord God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow I am staying with by killing her son? Then he stretched himself out of, over the boy three times. He cried out to the Lord and said, My Lord God, please let this boy's life return to him. 
So the Lord listened to Elijah's voice, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Then Elijah took the boy, brought him down from the upper room into the house, and gave him to his mother. Elijah said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know you are a man of God, and the Lord's word from your mouth is true. Look, your son is alive. The widow of Zarephath received her dead. They were raised to life again. And then, of course, there's the Shunammite woman in the case of Elisha, 2 Kings 4.36. Elisha called Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite woman. He called her and she came. Then Elisha said, Pick up your son. That was supposedly dead, but came back to life. The heroes of faith are said to be tortured in verse 35. Some men were tortured, not accepting release. Now, the NIV study Bible and John Gill say this, this is referring to the heroic Maccabean Jewish patriots of the 2nd century B.C. Remember, Antiochus Epiphanes came in about 168, desecrated the temple. That created a great reaction, the Maccabean revolt. And I think they finally took care of the Syrians under Antiochus Epiphanes IV about three years later, 165 or so. Uh, dates might be fuzzy. I'm speaking from memory, but it was in that time period. And these guys really were patriots, these Maccabeans. Unfortunately, their revolt ended up with the Hasmonean dynasty, which degraded like most administrations do. But they were really patriot people, and they, they risked their lives, and a lot of them got killed fighting the pagan Greeks, the pagan Seleucids. So it could be referring to those who were tortured, the NIV Study Bible says, and it's a general reference to countless believers who demonstrated their faith on the trial. And I would include Stephen among those martyrs, tortured for their faith. How about all the people that Paul put into prison? I bet they were tortured too. These people would not accept release. You know, pitch a little bit of incense to the emperor in the case of the Roman persecutions, and we'll let you and we'll let you go. Here's an example of the Maccabeans tempting somebody with release if that person would renounce his faith. This is from 2 Maccabees 7. The English is a little bit archaic, but I'll try to read it to you to get it so you can get a feel for what happened. Now Antiochus, that's Antiochus Epiphanes, thinking himself despised, which he was, and suspecting it to be a reproachful speech while the youngest was yet alive. This is some speech which I don't have in the quote. The young man must have said something to him that was not respectful. So Antiochus did not only exhort him by words, but also assured him with oaths that he would make him both a rich and a happy man if he would turn from the laws of his fathers, and that also he would take him for his friend and trust him with affairs. But when the young man would in no case hearken unto him, the king called his mother, and exhorted her that she would counsel the young man to save his life. And him he sent with that wicked Alcimus, whom he made high priest, and commanded that he should take vengeance of the children of Israel. So here we've got Alcimus going with this Maccabean prince's, whose name I don't have, mother, to tell the Maccabean prince, hey, you need to renounce your faith, your own mama and the high priest of Israel. And here was the response in verse 7, and said courageously, these, I think that these is referring to, the plural was confusing, freedom, uh, the laws that he had received to administer, the scriptures. I'm not sure exactly what these refer to, but it was something he had from heaven. For his laws I despise, and the, and the things of life and freedom, these I had from heaven. For his laws I despise them. In other words, I, I despise my freedom. I despise my life for the sake of God's laws. And from him I hope to receive them again. So when he was ready to die, he said thus, it is good being put to death by men to look for hope from God to be raised up again by him. As for thee, thou shalt have no resurrection to life. So that's pretty gutsy. He said, kill me. I'm not going to renounce my belief in the laws of God. 
I'm not going to renounce my adherence to the people of God. And again, this is a great role model for these Hebrew Christians who were tempted to apostatize. They didn't accept release so that they might gain a better resurrection, verse 35 says. What's better, to get out of jail or to get resurrected to better life again? What's better? Now, when it says these heroes of faith were tortured, Adam Clark says they were bastinado. That's when you lay down and you get beat on your feet with a kind of like a black a policeman's blackjack. Jameson Fawcett Brown said, no, they were broken on the wheel, whatever. It's horrible. Torture is just beyond belief horrible. Chapter 11, verse 36 of Hebrews. And others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. Now, these mockings and scourgings were exactly what the Hebrew Christians being written to were experiencing at, in the 60s A.D. as the author wrote his letter. Here's some examples of mocking. Samson was mocked by the Philistines in Judges 16 through 1625. When they were drunk, they said, bring Samson here to entertain us. So they brought Samson from prison and he entertained them. They had him stand between the pillars. Yeah, that was real entertaining to see a blind man standing between the pillars. Of course, he had the last laugh when he pulled those pillars down and killed everybody in the banquet hall, including himself. It's kind of a sad end. But they were mocking him. He was a judge of Israel, and they were making fun of him. Nothing worse than to be mocked. Elisha was mocked when children came up to him and mocked him. Of course, he had the last laugh there. He set some bears on the children, and they got eaten up, which I always thought was a little rough, considering they were kids. But some people say that they weren't really children. They were more like teenagers, in which case, hey, chomp away, bears. Then there's Jeremiah who was mocked by Pasher. Let me read you this entry about Pasher from Easton's Dictionary. Enraged at the plainness with which Jeremiah uttered his solemn warnings of coming judgments because of the abounding iniquity of the times, Pasher ordered the temple police to seize him and after inflicting on him corporal punishment, 40 stripes save one, to put him in the stocks in the high gate of Benjamin where he remained all night. So he's been he's been scourged and now he's getting ready to be mocked on being well he was mocked. They put him in the stocks. Very humiliating place for a prophet. On being set free in the morning, Jeremiah went to Pasher and announced to him that God had changed his name to Magor Mesabib, terror on every side. The punishment that fell upon him, upon Pasher, was probably remorse when he saw the ruin he had brought upon his country by advising a close alliance with Egypt in opposition to the counsels of Jeremiah. He was carried captive to Babylon and died there, so Jeremiah got the last laugh there too, but in the meanwhile he was mocked and scourged by Pasher, put up in a stock on a gate, the high gate of Benjamin. These heroes of faith were also subjected to bonds and imprisonment, verse 36 of Hebrews 11 says. We remember Joseph, of course. He was in jail when he had those famous dreams of his. And we see Samson was in prison, Judges 16:21. The Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and he was forced to grind grain in the prison. Jeremiah 37:16. So Jeremiah went into a cell in the dungeon and stayed there many days. Verse 30, chapter 38, verse 6 of Jeremiah. So they took Jeremiah and dropped him into the cistern of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the guard's courtyard, lord, lowering Jeremiah with ropes. There was no water in the cistern, only mud, and Jeremiah sank in the mud. It's pretty bad. All because Jeremiah was trying to tell him the truth of God. Micah is mentioned in 1 Kings 22, verses 26 through 27. Then the king of Israel, that was Ahab, ordered, Take Micaiah and return him to Ammon, the governor of the city, and to Joash, the king's son, and say, This is what the king says. Put this guy in prison and feed him only bread and water until I come back safely. So we see plenty of examples 
of how the Old Testament prophets were imprisoned, again, to encourage the Hebrew Christians who were also being imprisoned for their faith. Hebrews 11, verse 37, they were stoned, these heroes of faith. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Here's some examples of a prophet being stoned. This is Zechariah. This is not the prophet Zechariah, not the exilic prophet Zechariah who encouraged the Hebrews to finish building their temple. No, this is another Zechariah. Second Chronicles 24, 20 through 22. The Spirit of God took control of Zechariah, son of Jehoiada the priest. He stood above the people and said to them, This is what God says. Why are you transgressing the Lord's commands and you do not prosper because you have abandoned the Lord? He has abandoned you. Well, it's typical prophetic words. You people are sinning and God has forgotten about you. But they conspired against him and stoned him at the king's command in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. King Joash didn't remember the kindness that Zechariah's father Jehoiada had extended to him, but killed his son. Jehoiada actually put Joash on the throne, basically. If you recall the story, and this is what King Joash did, killed his son, the prophet. While he was dying, Zechariah was dying, he said, may the Lord see and demand an account. Just amazing. Even good kings like Joash kill people, kill prophets. Jesus refers to this, Luke 11:51, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible. This generation is the phrase that Jesus over and over again used of the Jews who were now persecuting the Hebrews in the 60s AD. This generation will not pass away until all these things happen to you, including the tearing down of the temple stone from stone. That's going to happen to this wicked generation. This generation, the the generation of the Jews who killed, who are guilty of all the blood of the prophets from Abel to Zechariah. There's another famous example of a prophet being stoned. Naboth was stoned by Ahab. And Ahab wanted his vineyard up there in northern Israel. And, and he got it by stoning Naboth. 1 Kings 21:13. The two wicked men came in and sat opposite him. Then the wicked men testified against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has cursed God and the king. That's Ahab. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. And Ahab got the vineyard. So once again, we see the incredible mistreatment that these early heroes of faith got. Jesus referred to this treatment that Jerusalem had done, that the Jews had done to the prophets, Matthew 23, 37. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. These Old Testament heroes of faith are said in verse 37 to have been sawed in two. This is probably referring to an old Jewish tradition that says that Manasseh, the evil Jewish, southern Jewish king, the the kingdom of Judah, King Manasseh is said to have sawed Isaiah in half, as Adam Clark and NIV Study Bible say. That's probably what that's referring to. Verse 37 also says that the heroes of faith died by the sword. Here's some examples. The priests at Nob were slain by Saul, 1 Samuel 22:18. So the king said to Doeg, go and execute the priest. So Doeg the Edomite went and executed the priest himself. On that day, he killed 85 men who wore linen ephods. 85 priests wiped out by Saul. We, of course, know the famous story of the prophets of the Lord who was slain by Jezebel to where Elijah thought he was the only one left. We know that Elijah was slain by Jehoiakim, Jeremiah 26:23. They brought Uriah out of Egypt and took him to King Jehoiakim, who executed him with a sword and threw his corpse into the burial place of the common people. One more prophet destroyed by the sword. Now note that all these heroes of the faith that are being mentioned now in verses 36 and 37, they died. Whereas the earlier heroes of faith 
survived and prospered. Again, let's make the point again. Faith is how you go through the trial. It's not whether the trial comes out on, in, on the earthly sense, in the earthly sense, positive. Could, it could be a negative outcome from this world's point of view. In verse 32, we see heroes of faith who escaped the edge of the sword. Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Hebrews 11:34. All of these quenched the raging of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. So having faith doesn't guarantee a positive outcome from a this-worldly point of view. I wish that all the Copenhagenites that name it and claim it and blab it and grab it, scream it and redeem it, mark it and park it, haul it and call it, people, would get a hold of that. Might make everybody's life a lot happier. These heroes of faith in verse 37 wandered about in sheepskins. This is probably referring to the garb of prophets like Elijah, as Gill and Clark point out, 2 Kings 1.8. They replied, a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. Somebody's asking who this guy is. A hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. He said it's Elijah the Tishbite. He was called hairy but probably because of the sheepskin that he was wearing. Now, a sheepskin is not something that kings wear. It's something that people that don't have any money wear who live out in the wilderness. And that's why sheepskin is mentioned. In fact, Adam Clark says that when it is said in Second Kings 2, verse 8, Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, struck the waters, which parted, and then he walked through. The mantle is a sheepskin. So Elijah, and that's typical garb of prophets. John the Baptist, of course, you remember he was wearing some rough, I don't know if it says sheepskin. He was wearing some kind of hide, hairy hide. Now, here's some possible reasons why they were wearing sheepskins. It could be they were forced into exile and poverty, and therefore they didn't have any money, except they had to wear that. Or it could be they voluntarily chose to wear sheepskins to show that they had renounced the world. I'm not really sure which it is, but they were not your ordinary person like you and me. These heroes of faith, it is said in verse 37, were destitute. That just doesn't mean poor. That means really poor. Just like Elijah, remember in 1 Kings 17:6, the ravens kept bringing him, bringing Elijah, bread and meat in the morning and in the evening, and he drank from the wadi, the little stream. He was down to nothing. And they were afflicted, verse 37 says in Hebrews 11. Here's an example of Elijah in 1 Kings 19:4. But he, Elijah, went on a day's journey into the wilderness. He sat down under a broom tree and prayed that he might die. He said, I have had enough, Lord, take my life for I'm no better than my father's. This verse is good for anyone who might think that being a prophet is a bed of roses, or who think that being a Christian is like living in a palace, reclining on soft cushions, perfumed with fragrance, watching a six-foot flat-screen color TV. It's not like that. It's real tough to be a Christian. Except Jesus said, Take upon me my yoke, my burden is light. Because he gives you supernatural power to live in this world, the world that hates you. Hebrews 11.38, the world was not worthy of them. Absolutely not. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. The ESV study Bible says that the world didn't deserve to hear the truth from the prophets, considering how they treated the prophets. That's true. The prophets had the words of life, spiritual words, and this is how they got treated. It's ridiculous. It's amazing what the human race will do to the word of God. Now, John Gill says that verse 38 is a parenthesis that has been added to show that the holy people were not uh, not justly persecuted. They were unjustly persecuted. They had not done anything to deserve such treatment, which I think really should be obvious. Now, the world is not worthy of them, all these heroes of faith that have been mentioned. Now, remember, some of these things are not recorded in the Old Testament. I already mentioned the story about the Maccabeans. Some of these stories came from traditions in early Jewish and Christian writings. For example, Manasseh saw Isaiah in two. 
Now, these people, these these heroes of faith, some of them hid in caves and holes in the ground. Here's some examples of that. Elijah, 1 Kings 18.4, and Elijah took a hundred prophets and hid them. Actually, that wasn't Elijah. That was Obadiah, who was the master of the palace, steward of the palace for the wicked king Ahab. But Obadiah was a righteous man, 1 Kings 18.4, and Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them, fifty men to a cave, and provided them with food and water when Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets. We see David hiding from Saul in a cave, 1 Samuel 24.3, when Saul came to the sheep pens along the road, a cave was there, and he went in to relieve himself. David and his men were staying in the back of the cave. So, a cave is not a good place to be. You're, you're being persecuted if you're in a cave. Obadiah, I've already mentioned Obadiah about hiding the 50 men in a cave. And we also can see in the story of, Maccabee, of the Maccabees, Mattathias and his sons and Judas Maccabeus were hidden in caves too. I won't quote those passages, but you just see the heroes of the faith. They didn't live in palaces. They lived in caves and holes in the ground, which is basically what a cave is. We go to verse 39 of Hebrews 11. All these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. Now, the but there shows something. It is a paradox that heroes of faith should be commended and still not receive what was promised. Well, you might say, well, if they had so much faith, how come they didn't get what was promised? Well, we'll see the answer to this in just a minute as we go through. They didn't receive what was promised. That verse is similar it says in verse 39, they did not receive what was promised. And verse 39 is similar to Hebrews 11:13. These all died in faith without having received the promises. Now, that sounds kind of strange because here I'm going to give you some verses that says that they did receive the promises, Hebrews 6:15. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. Hebrews 11:33, who by faith conquered kingdoms and ministered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions. So, obviously, the book, author of the book of Hebrews is not going to put such a gross, a gross, palpable contradiction in his book. So, here's the reconciliation. When the scripture in Hebrews says that the heroes of faith obtain promises, it means promises in the short run, not in the long run. In the short run, they received a military victory. They received some land and so forth. But in the long run, the spiritual fulfillment, the Messiah, Jesus, the kingdom of heaven, the rest, they hadn't gotten that. That's a simple reconciliation. Let's look at some other Old Testament passages which say Israel obtained the promises. And we'll see in these passages that the promises that were obtained were the physical promises, the types, the shadows. But the ultimate promises that were fulfilled in Jesus, they hadn't gotten that yet. They looked forward to that with faith. Joshua 21, 43-45. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their fathers. See there, they obtained the promises, but it was physical land. And they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side according to all he had sworn to their fathers. Those promises that he had made to Abraham, God gave it to them. He gave them rest. So that was a physical fulfillment. First Kings 4, 20-21 Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea. They were eating, drinking, and rejoicing. There's a promise, numerous as the sand by the sea. Physical fulfillment of the promises to Abraham. Nehemiah 9, 7 and 8 you are Yahweh, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and changed his name to Abraham. You found his heart faithful in your sight and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Gigersites to give to his descendants. You have kept your promise for you are righteous. There the promise was made to Abraham and his descendants and his descendants saw it. They ended up inheriting the land by the time you got down to David. So 
Again, the reconciliation is this. The heroes of faith in the Old Testament received the type, the shadow, the physical land, and so forth. They didn't receive the antitype, the substance, heaven and rest. They did not receive what was promised, so the thing that they did that was promised that they did not receive, what could that be? Well, it can't be the land of Canaan because they did receive that, as I just read to you, in 1 Kings 4.20 and Joshua 21. So they got that. How about did they not receive the promises of deliverance and victory? Well, that can't be because some of these heroes of faith did receive victory, like Joshua and the judges. Some of them didn't, but some of them did. Well, it's the promise of the Messiah. They didn't receive that yet. They were in the Old Testament. The heroes of faith hadn't experienced Jesus yet. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. They all heard of the promises made to Abraham of a heavenly rest and of the promise of the Messiah. For this was a constant tradition, but they died without having seen this anointed of the Lord, this Messiah, this anointed one, this this Christ. Christ was not in any of their times manifested in the flesh. And of him, who was the expectation of all nations, they heard only by the hearing of the ear. This must be the promise without receiving of which the apostles say they died. Oh, of course, they didn't get Jesus yet. But Jameson Fawcett Brown says they had received Jesus at the second coming, which I find that entirely off the wall. It's not what he's talking about. They, I mean, in the Old Testament, they hadn't even conceived of the first coming yet. So how could they conceive of the second coming of Jesus when they didn't know who Jesus was? They just knew that there was a Messiah coming and there was going to be victory, and peace and a kingdom. We go to verse 40 and we'll finish this audio. Since God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. That's in the middle of a sentence here. So let me go back to verse 39 and read the whole sentence. Verse 39, all these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. Verse 40, since God had provided something better for us. They didn't receive what was promised because, or since, since it is the fact that God has provided something better than land and offspring. something so that they would not be made perfect without us. In other words, you Hebrew Christians in AD 60, you are part of that blessing to the nations that was promised to Abraham. And they never could, the Old Testament heroes of faith could never fulfill, could never be perfect as the people of God without the New Testament Christian Hebrews. Something better than all that Old Testament stuff, that was Jesus, of course. Hebrews 11:10 for he was this is Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. He was looking for the kingdom, the spiritual kingdom. Hebrews 11 verses 13 through 16, these all died in faith without having received the promises, but they saw from a distance, greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. All the good earthly promises they had gotten, God had blessed them, but still they knew there was something better. Something better since God had provided something better for us. Verse 40, continue, continuing with Hebrews 11 at verse 14. Now those who say such things, that they are foreigners and strangers on the land. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland because they are foreigners and strangers. They don't consider Israel as their home, their permanent home. That's just temporary. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return to Ur or to Haran. They could have gone back. But no, verse 16, they now desire a better place. A heavenly one, a better place. Verse 40 says, something better. God has provided something better for us. In verse, chapter 11, verse 16, he says, a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. That's the heavenly city, the city above, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new covenant. Us, the church, the kingdom of God, where we are. That's better than physical land. Better than real estate. 
Again, all of this is to encourage the Hebrews. Now, they might not have a land. They might not have the land of Israel when they stick with the church instead of apostatizing to Judaism. They might not have that land, but by golly, they got the kingdom. They got the heavenly city. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hold on, Hebrew Christians. You got something better than the land of Israel if you'll just endure this persecution. Now, these Old Testament saints could not be made perfect. And in this context, perfect means completely perfect. They would not be made completely perfect without us. In order for the kingdom of God to come to its maturity, they have to be New Testament Christians as well as Old Testament saints. The Old Testament saints in heaven are not complete without us, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. Ladies and gentlemen, I have now finished with Hebrews chapter 11 with all these encouraging examples of faith. In chapter 12, the author mainly tells the Hebrews to hang on, don't grow weary, keep on pushing on to endure, to encourage them in their horrible situation. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.